The Great Moving Left show wants to reconstruct the British left's public sphere. Critical, constructive and engaged, it seeks to offer a collective forum of debate on the critical questions facing the left today. It would like to see the left's capacity to mobilise transformed into ability to organise, turning a left that can polemicise into one that can build a project to win. Without spaces for concentrated reflection and political education, any new left is unlikely to succeed. This is The Great Moving Left Show. Welcome to The Great Moving Left Show, the first podcast in a series which has just been formed, as you've heard. Uh, we're joined with two great guests and the two other hosts of the, of the programme. Uh, we're, we're joined by Lewis Bassett, who is an activist based in Derby. He was working in Momentum on the election and he researches uh, Corbynism for a living at the University of Manchester. Yeah, my, uh, it's not a great living, I'd say. Poultry son. What we do for the left. Uh, Maya Entwistle is a Labour Party activist based in Kensington. She's involved very much in the election and is working on the fractional campaign Fair, Fair Pay in uh, SOAS. And is Fair a recent... play. <laughs> and is a researcher. Unfortunately. These are our guests. Play. <laughs> And then we have the two other hosts, which is Jonas and Cathy. Hello. Hello. How's it going? I'm more of a producer than a host. <laughs> <laughs> I'll chip in occasionally. Um, yeah, Jonas, education worker, um, part of the Great Move and Left show, um, general lefty miscreant, I suppose. That's good. Yeah, <laughs> that's, that's the introduction you'd like. Um, I'm, well, I'm Matt. And I'm a PhD student as well, researching the left in the 70s and where it all went wrong. So I'm just experiencing two defeats at once. So, yeah, that's my life. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, so we're discussing the election and what went wrong. And so, yeah, we, our two guests were deeply involved in the campaign in various places. Lewis in Derby in the, the West Midlands or East Midlands and Maya in Kensington. So, yeah, Lewis, um, what were you doing on the campaign and uh, what did you do? What were your experiences? What were you expecting? So, for the duration of the campaign, I actually wasn't based in East Windows, I was based here in London in Finsbury Park at Momentum's uh, scruffy offices with another 50 scruffy activists like myself. Although not all of them are scruffy, but... Um, and... <laughs> this <sun. laughs> And yeah, I was working on their video team doing bits of their user-generated content, which is just a kind of term for, yeah, well, it's what it sounds like, getting people to submit um, videos mainly to us. Um, and then halfway through the campaign, I got enrolled into making um, videos that were targeting what they were calling Labour Leavers, so previous Labour voters who voted for leaving in the referendum. Um, and that, in a way, was kind of like sprung on me somewhat halfway through the campaign. Um, and it was something I thought I might be doing, totally, wasn't completely sure. And because I had the links to uh, kind of live, live in Nottingham, come from Nottingham and live in Derby, um, I had some of the links to kind of do some of that stuff. But it was interesting the way um, there was a kind of moment of panic in the middle of the campaign. I thought that kind of there was a ripple 
that went both through the Labour Party and uh, Momentum, and I think it came shortly after some both some internal polling and and the kind of constituency-based polling that came out. The MRP. The MRP yeah. polling, exactly. Um, and I think it was also not that long after um, Labour had released their huge manifesto, which was obviously whistles and bows added to the already big manifesto from 2017. And I felt like there was a kind of turning point where people realised, oh, oh shit, like policy's not totally cutting through. Um, we also realised that our kind of um, 2017 core vote had been, um, were kind of staying with us to some large extent. Probably we'd overestimated the extent to which those, those voters might go to the Lib Dems. And obviously, the, the problem that we that we've had that we have had for for at least a decade, maybe more, um, is that you have all of these seats um, in the so-called red wall that were not necessarily coming back to Labour, and that was being shown in the polling. So there was this kind of frantic rush, um, and I was pushed out to um, back to the Midlands and, and to South Yorkshire and parts of the North East to go and make a bunch of videos that basically we would then advertise at voters in these places. So I had a bit of a um, insight into kind of things at the centre and also, you know, driving around these um, somewhat desperate areas and maybe we can uh, talk about those experiences later, but yeah, that was what yeah. I was up to. I had, I suppose, a very different like vantage point and perspective. Um, I um, was almost exclusively in Kensington. Um, I, at the beginning of the campaign, had not anticipated that I would be exclusively in Kensington. Um, I pitched up sort of like <clears throat> you know, four or five days in, essentially, um, having grown up there and thinking that, you know, I would like to do a fair amount here, given that, like, this is the first time that Labour has ever really run a meaningful, substantial campaign in um, Kensington. Um, but I thought I probably would be also a bit disloyal. I would go other places. Um, I was, you know, there were lots of people that I knew going out to, like, Thurrock and, you know, etc., etc. Um, but it turned out that there was, um, for a variety of reasons, like, quite a lot of organisational need in Kensington, um, and there were a lot of activists showing up, and I had some experience from the 2017 campaign and then, like, a bit of other um, labour organising that I'd done, so I ended up very quickly doing, uh, I suppose, a lot more than I'd anticipated and doing more... Um, I suppose back of house organising um, and yeah I ended up spending the duration of the campaign there um, I ran a campaign centre um, on the 12th um, yeah that's sort of my perspective but I guess also like um, in comparison to Lewis I had very much like a kind of London based metropolitan experience of the campaign and pretty much exclusively um, so we could maybe speak to like some of the different um, dynamics and tensions that were borne out in the election mm. Yeah, like, yeah, I'd like to hear more about that. I mean, the, I mean, what was your opinion walking into the election? How did you think things would go? Because, I mean, me personally, I think basically until the, the, the exit poll came out, I thought that we'd at least get a hung parliament, a um, couple of points short, and when it came about, obviously I was gutted and went into a state of denial for two hours until the, the results from Blythe Valley and all mm. sorts of places drifted in and just sank me into an even further state of depression. Um, but I think for a lot of people, there was a starting point of either sobriety or over-optimism and then they walked into it and then halfway through they were thinking, oh, maybe things ain't going to bear out based on the experience. How did that match for you guys? No, <clears throat> Yeah, well, so I <clears throat> I was in a campaign centre 
Um, and like, as is the way with these things, like a, you know, a Labour Party member had opened up their homes to us. They happened to have a projector. So we were like 100 people in a room, 100 people that had been out like pounding the streets and it was just chucking it down. You know, it was like awful conditions. <laughs> <laughs> they like finally retreated a moment so of reprieve <laughs> to be met with this just like absolutely like horrendous, appalling news. Um, as I was just very tragic, like people were kind of crying and there was a lot of consolation. Um, I probably, much like you felt, it was completely unexpected basically. I, I don't really know what I'd prepared myself for, but I think 2017 kind of primed people um, for thinking that like, you know, it was possible for us to like have a hung parliament, you know, some people even thought like we might win. Um, so then to be met with an exit poll that says like 191, seats was pretty crushing and unexpected um in kensington we then went to a one of the campaign centers also happened to be a pub so we all went there afterwards um and there was a kind of like glimmer of hope in the Just evening the underbridge yeah yeah ariadne's yeah, yeah. it's run by a greek communist pub. it's really <laughs> excellent it's really fun yeah, yeah. so we all went there um to watch some at least some of the results come in before yeah, people sort of like, yeah. um, you know, tailed off to go home and just like lit the wounds. Yeah. Um, but there was a kind of, the, the exit poll for Kensington said that like, okay, you know, although it's been really bad everywhere in Kensington, they predicted a win. Mm. Um, so I then went to sleep having slept an hour um, and woke up to the news that we had not only suffered a massive defeat on the national level, mm. we also hadn't won Kensington. Yeah. Um, we lost by 150 votes. Um, yeah, I mean, sort of, I felt completely stumped for like words. Yeah. Um, so, I, well, I, I guess my journey was like slightly different, but pretty similar, I guess, like the, the, the crushing defeat that we've all felt um, was, was the, like the same, but I guess, like, you know, optimism of the will went into the election thinking, um, obviously, Labour's polling is kind of dire. Um, there's lo there were lots of problems with the project, um, the movement, um, which we could get into. Um, but, you know, knowing all of this, I just thought, you know, obviously we have to throw everything at it. Um, and then, I guess, with that spirit of optimism, you don't necessarily reflect on some of the early warning signs that things were not necessarily going that well. So <laughs> obviously the polling itself throughout the campaign didn't show the same trend that it showed in 2017. Mm. And there was this kind of mixture between like, um, every time a decent poll came out, people were like, yeah, this is the poll. We have to trust this one. It's brilliant. And the next one, we don't trust polls at all. Forget polls. Um, and, then, and then, I mean, there's like innumerable things, I think. But one of them, as I said, when I was going to these, I went, I went to North East Derbyshire and I was in Clay Cross, which is an area um, just next to um, Dennis Skinnerski in Bolsover. And I was, I was making videos and at the same time I was kind of occasionally vox popping people, asking people, um, you know, who were they going to vote for and why and so on. And pretty much all the people I met were, they, they would respond by saying I'm voting for Boris. And I, that was really striking when I think about it, because they weren't saying I was voting Tory, they were voting for Boris. I think that's quite significant to the kind of campaign that they ran, um, and obviously significant to these areas, which are almost exclusively former mining seats. Um, that was the kind of main form of work there. 
And indeed, I spoke to a, a kind of old couple, probably late 60s. The man was a former miner, um, and, and, and that's exactly what they told me. And, and, and you asked them why they would vote for Boris, and, and like, honestly, I can't even recount what they were saying. Like, it was really jar like, completely confused. And, and why wouldn't they vote for Corbyn? And again, it was completely all for Labour, and it was, they were complete mixed messages. Like, they had no real coherent, like, view on, on their politics, but that was what was going to happen. And that, you know, when I think back, and other things, like stuff that my family was saying on Facebook, and I would, you know, it kind of feels more empowering when you can knock on a door or talk to someone that you know, and they're expressing views that you think um, that you've got an answer for. And then you're like, oh, okay, it's not that bad because I'm able to, like, respond to these things. And that was one of the great things about the campaign this year was that people had developed some of the skills to have those kind of conversations. And I noticed that on our doorstep full morning in 2017. People knocking on the door and they said, you know, um, well, you know, Labour is um, not going to be able to afford all the things that they're saying they're going to pay for. I noticed that the level of... Um, response to those kind of questions was far greater. It's just that, um, and I think this is one of the key um, lessons from this campaign is that, you know, those that the extent of our ground campaign and the extent of our online operation, like the extent to which we we had a, a kind of people powered campaign, that alone won't work. That mm. doesn't get the goods. Yeah, did yeah. and, and I think probably, and if we if we had won or delivered that hung parliament, you'd have all the articles in the Guardian and wherever else. All kind of like giving you the headline figures of how many millions of people that fit, um, that momentum reached on on Facebook, and how many uh, millions, how many tens of thousands of people were contacted on the doorsteps, and all those things will still be true. It's just we didn't win, and and I think you'll probably find that we had the biggest people power campaign this country's ever seen, and that that poses mm. massive questions for us. Mm. Um, that sort of yeah. tallies with my um, I suppose overall <clears throat> assessment of what went wrong, which is that the sort of Perhaps, like, I mean, I think that <clears throat> the, the, the 2017 was misread um, as, you know, essentially an endorsement of all, of, of any kind of version of Corbynism, right? So instead of thinking, like, right, what we need now is message discipline, instead what was, um, what was kind of surmised was that, you know, we, people will... Um, be susceptible to any kind of left messaging. We can offer them anything and they will want it. Um, <clears throat> and then the hubris to then think that you could spend a six-week campaign convincing people of this, like, essentially veritable cornucopia, like, which would, would obviously be great. Like, if Corbynism were, were implemented in its 2019 iteration, it would be glorious. But to think that it's possible to build that kind of to consciousness around leftist issues in a six-week period, mm. I mean, it's kind of extraordinary. And I think, like, you know, if we're thinking where we need to go next, it's, like, how to take... The skills that people have developed over years of Corbynism and transpose them onto a much longer time frame, a much longer horizon. Um, I don't know what that looks like. I don't think anybody it looks at like this. Stage. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. wow. Jesus. I don't know what, like, does that chime with other people's assessment? Yeah, I mean, it seems to me what both of you are saying is I mean from what you were just immediately saying the six weeks wasn't enough and like 
for us to really get a message across. Um, and then the question becomes, what were we doing prior <laughs> to those six weeks, right? What was the longer term message building, like the building in communities, like the longer term augmenting of a political class narrative that didn't get bogged down in the the media controversies, the Twitter storms, the factional infighting, like how did you navigate all of those different things? Um, but the other thing it seems to me that like hearing both of you is that in 2017, we were surprised by how many flocked to campaign. We were surprised by how many people listened to the campaign. But essentially, the national campaign was fantastic. <laughs> and the rest was just like a great afterwards. Whereas with the 2019 campaign, we had almost the flip reverse. As we could have been absolutely certain that the ground campaign and the people flocking to it were there <laughs> and they were there with some sense of like a socialist argumentation that <laughs> like they'd been listening to the debates over the last like few years like whatever their take on any specific controversy they had an answer at the door and they prosecuted it um but the national campaign was shocking <laughs> it seems to me that and that seems rooted in the last at least since 2017 um i'd kind of just like to know what you guys think in terms of how do you root the failures of this campaign and the the failures of since 2017 to really push Corbynism beyond mm. its peak? I think there's like two things in that um, uh, in terms of uh, how how is the national campaign being ran um, and also what kind of preparation the activists were doing in the run up to it and what kind of um, infrastructure we were building. That seems to be two questions there. In terms of the national campaign, I think. Um, Obviously, it's been said, everyone will know, like, the, the kind of general, like, narrative that Labour have used to explain the defeat was, it was a Brexit election, and whether you supported a second referendum or you thought that we needed to commit to leave, like, people just have maintained their position on that and basically said that was the reason we lost. And, like, there is a large extent to which that, um, that certainly appears to be true, and I think that became manifest in the extent to which, because Labour's lack of decisiveness on that issue and um, we should be clear Jeremy's lack of um, leadership on that issue his inability to win people over to whatever position he felt was the one to have um, and uh, because of because of that failure because of the vacuum what we ended up having was a campaign that effectively seemed to be like trying to buy votes so a kind of form of economism where we were mm. just like and then the classic example the example I've Used before is the um, WASPI pledge. So this pledge of fifty-three billion um, pounds to to give money back to women whose whose um, state pension age rose and, and they lost out as a result. Um, and that was like that's like more than half of our other tax and spend commitments. I mean, like it's just it makes all of our spending commitments look completely ludicrous. And there are other things like this as well. It just made everything just look. I mean, it, it went went so far as to like towards the la to like the last week of the campaign, Labour started using a slogan that was putting money in your pocket. Like, I mean, it's just like, I think people just don't buy that. Like, it's just, yeah, yeah, yeah. there's no narrative there. It's just and, and again, that deficiency. And I think the left has a, like, a long history with, with failing to engage in, like, cultural politics and, and, and often, like, talking in terms of economism, not necessarily in terms of class, but in terms of economism. Um, and, but, like, that was certainly kind of uh, at play here. Um, but then also in terms of like building up the infrastructure, I'm, I'm a real like kind of pessimist when it comes to um, the extent to which activists can really rebuild um, the kind of association of class culture that existed up until the 70s. 
um, until the mid-80s maybe. Um, and I think that our capacity to do that is really limited. Um, and, and I speak both kind of, I guess, with the hat on of the, as an academic and, and also as an activist based in Derby trying to do some of that stuff. I mean, it's, you're starting from such a low base, like Dar Derby North's Labour Party, you know, they get like 20, 30 people to a CLP meeting max for like our AGM. And then it's like, you know, w we try and do cultural social events and I'm not saying that we, we've, you know, cracked it exactly, but like, I mean, just on a basic level, you're competing, I, I remember phone banking in Derby, trying to get people to turn up to the AGM and you, you're speaking to people like, oh, you know, you know, I'm going to a concert that night, or like I'm doing other things at night. Like people's lives are not oriented around the same, uh, and not not the, not the kind of same in which they were. In which we had really rich and deep association working class culture, and I think, I mean, you know, w without kind of manufacturing a bunch of other kind of um, uh, structures in place, that that kind of stuff just not really going to come back. So, yeah, again, that raises a huge kind of open question as to what what we can do there. Right. Well, yeah, that's a depressing note. Uh, I, th yeah, I think that we'd want to think about the voluntarism and the limits to voluntarism uh, during an election. I think we've seen with the Chingford um, massive mobilisation, thousands of people. You saw the photos of the biggest mobilisation I think I've ever seen of Labour Party activists and how much the vote actually increased from the last time. The amount of votes per canvasser seemingly is like one zero point one vote per canvasser. Yeah, so you can imagine how many people... Twice, and I think I probably convinced about one. Yeah. yeah. Two people yeah. or something. Yeah. They also... Well, there's also some numbers that the campaigning actually made the vote go down mm. in some places. So. I definitely saw it in, um, uh, uh, in, in some areas where you go, like, like really working-class areas that, like... And you get someone from like London who turns up, and they're very just like, you know, there's like clearly chalk and cheese kind yeah. of like thing where the, the person on the doorstep is like, I knew you were a metropolitan elite, you know, like confirms everything they felt. Like. So what's what's the lesson then, Lewis, from from that? Uh, is there, or is there just no strategy that can be used to build up counter power in these places? I think are they totally lost? Because that I mean that is a debate that. Well, needs to be had at least at an intellectual level because when you just look around Europe and North America, these places which are ex-industrial, Britain is one of the unique countries in that it was able to hold the left these these places. In France, the Front National and well now that it's new its new form wins massively in the ex-industrial parts of northern and eastern France. Yeah, her base, Marine Le Pen's base, is in the northeast of France, where the French Communist Party was massive place if you watch the film amazing film oscar winning film harlan county usa that neighborhood uh well that area in kentucky rural kentucky voted 80 percent or something around that for trump mm. um and yet it was a site of the incredible minor strike in the 70s associational culture incredible movements and and class consciousness in turin as well just researching in the space that was right next to the biggest car factory in europe they're now sending a fascist, the neighbor, workers' neighbourhood is now sending a fascist to a far-right uh, representative to Parliament. So across Europe and North America, you're seeing these, these ex-industrial places turning to the far-right. Um, and you're seeing they're changing age demographics. You see the big major cities are the Labour vote, mm. big in the 20s and the early 30s, 
and up to the, up to 49. And you see the cities on the age demographic map, there's a huge bump in the middle on those, those ages and massive concave uh, relationship for the towns. As young people move out of these small towns and villages and get moved towards the cities, jobs. And so there's been a massive break in generational renewal of working class mm. communities. There's, and that's part of the part of the part of the contradiction in our society is not um, between north and south, but this the age contradiction actually mirrored onto the geographical contradiction, which is all driven by the centralization of capital, financialization of our economy, depends on depends on the south and the southeast and the big cities. We need to have these debates about the class composition in the heart of British politics, both political and social. Um, in, in response to the kind of, um, I think that there's a kind of debate there about um, like agency and structure and um, what kind of agency does the left have to kind of recompose the class, putting it in your terms like this. Um, and I think that I, well, I've had this debate before with people and um, there's the, the we can we can go into kind of new n new left review text because we're on a podcast named after Stuart Hall essay. <laughs> so there's the EP Thompson. Go for it. <laughs> <laughs> I keep it brief. There's the EP Thompson right classic thing of um, the working class built themselves right. They didn't just kind of arise at the yeah. allotted time. They built themselves right. And this is a kind of obviously it has its own kind of history as a kind of reaction to like the Stalinization of Marxism and. And also, kind of some of the new kind of social movements that are coming through at that time. And Perry, Perry Anderson has 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 a bit of back and forth with VP Thompson, and his kind of response is like, "Fine, but basically just amounts to saying like they didn't just you know they were they weren't the working class wasn't didn't just make itself. It was also made by industry and war and a bunch of other kind of things that mm -hmm. conditions that kind of gave it its substance that composed it. Um, and I think outside of especially those two things, um, well. In, in manufacturing has a, has a deep historic correlation with working class um, power. Um, there's a great researcher called um, Adano's Manny who wrote an, an article in Jacobin about this um, and he shows like empirically a really deep correlation between what he calls working class capacities and um, the growth of like certain sectors, mainly manufacturing, mining and other things. Um, and like, so when, when, if you look at, you know, if you look at a graph, like manufacturing in this country since the post-wars has gone from something like 40% of our GDP to like eight or something. And the, and the strike rate follows it. Like the strike rate has been at its lowest levels for like, you know, record year on year low for like the past 30 years. And like, I, I'm kind of doubtful of the extent to which, like, even if you have 100,000 committed Labour Party activists who you know, imagining that they might even be evenly distributed, which they're not. They're mainly in London and the other big cities. You know, I, I doubt, I don't really understand what the strategies for building that back. The, the same thing with associational kind of styles of culture. I think like the left loves to talk about um, uh, the things I just talked about, political economy, but I think, you know, you can't also exclude things like um, the impact of television or social media on associational culture. Um, the impact of just like individualized kind of um, uh, like like subjectivities that kind of was mm. a project product of um, you know movements in the late sixties. So like there are these huge molds that um, that we kind of live within and that, that maybe we lack to kind of 
to, if insofar as we aspire to, to do the um, building class power thing. And that, I mean, I'm not saying we shouldn't do that. And I, I, that's what I spend some of my time doing as an activist, trying to build up some of the intellectual and like um, association of culture that can like sustain a political party. Um, but I also think we have to be realistic about it, and that leads us partly on to what the kind of premise of left populism was, uh, and maybe still is, and which obviously has its like massive downfalls if you look at like France and, and the, the fate of Mélenchon there, um, and how like kind of loony he became, um, or is, and uh, <laughs> and, and and like what, you know, but but what it kind of entails is trying to appeal to people essentially discursively and trying to construct an enemy and construct a people, and that doesn't really require you to have quite deep association of cultures in order mm. to, to, to do that. Um, the problem for the Labour Party is that it's just inherently like almost like an anti-populist party because the Labour Party is so composed, it's such a, it's, despite all the kind of idea that like, um, you know, Corbyn was some sort of like neo-Stalinist, like Corbyn was like the most Labour Party politician you could have, he, he's like predisposed to compromise, his whole attitude is, yeah. is against kind of um, being an, a kind of an aggressor and he wants to kind of pacify and please everyone in a way. Um, and so, and, and, and in the Labour Party it has like multiple stakeholders, you have like, like loads of trade unions that all have different kind of perspectives on things, you obviously have the members, you have the PLP, then you have the internal kind of off, like bureaucracy of the party itself, and there are all these sources of power that make it almost impossible to have a kind of like populist leader. Um, so yeah, I mean, yeah, not, not again, again, not a very optimistic <laughs> perspective from me, but... But I suppose there's also a way in which, like, we could do a kind of, like, localised left populism if if we're thinking about, like, you know, the, the, the kind of hemorrhaging of uh, votes and the kind of slaughter of MPs, particularly in the Red Wall, um, that, that, in a sense, also represents an opportunity, right? Because there were a lot of kind of MPs that had become very entrenched in these positions. They were effectively fiefdoms, some on the left, some on the right. Um, but there's now an opportunity to have, you know, that maybe I'm naive and I, and I think that this is kind of necessary but not sufficient, but I do think, like, having meaningful local candidates that are in some respects representative mm. of the people that live there is a very good point of departure for then building something more like you know Laura Pidcock lost so there are obviously limitations to that um but you know like if you look at Redcar you have an MP like Anna Turley who was a, you know she's Oxbridge educated like went to a private school worked for the IPPR and a variety of different think tanks <laughs> who was then defeated by a local candidate, uh, Jacob Young, who, like, you know, he's 24, gay, works in the factory, went to work on the 13th, um, and, like, is meaningfully a local candidate. And, I mean, I, you know, there's obviously a lot of education that has to go into building these candidates, right? Like, they don't... They, you don't just have left candidates that are this, but, like... Ocasio-Cortez is also in part a product of that kind of like left education and so I think if that can be that that conceivably should be one of the kind of priorities or primary objectives mm. and then and then I suppose we could do a sort of like distributed left populism which doesn't look at the national level but looks more locally um, and tries to kind of root the, the populism in that CLP or 
that constituency and then builds from there. Mm. Um, well, we're talking about political strategy, but also the objective constraints. We're talking about the end of associational culture, decomposition of the working class. There are other long-term uh, factors which have precluded a Labour victory. People were talking about this a lot after the election. This is 10, 15, 20, 30 years in the making. The Labour vote's been going down for all these years. European social democracy is in crisis or dead. So Labour was trying to push against the tide. So Jonas, what do you, what do you make of the objective factors versus the subjective failures um, argument? I mean, in the short term, I veer much more in the context of this general election towards the subjective factors. I think in 2017, there was a point at which we could have been a lot more bolder about our policy. They could have been, use the word distributed, I think it's like a useful phrase, they could have been a distributed turn um, amongst Labour activists towards municipalism. Um, you know, loads of people have turned around since this general election and they've drawn a conclusion from this general election that is to say, we need to build at a local level, we need to build on terms of municipal struggle, struggles against Labour councils, struggles to remould Labour councils in the less favoured struggles against Tory councils. There's that level. Um, but also things on like a much more national level. The We can't really evade the question of Europe. Um, we can't evade it because it was obviously a big part. It was the big part of the general election we just fought, but it's also still going to be a big part of probably the next five years of um, British politics, if we're all sat here being honest. Um, the inability to have a clear line on that and the anti-racist implications of that, um, so freedom of movement in particular, um, I think have really hampered us. Um, and even like in terms of like the internal wranglings of the Labour Party, I know no one wants to really talk about the internal wranglings of the Labour Party because at this stage it all looks rather ambiguous, rather demoralising and rather like something we don't want to get too bogged down in, but it's obviously had a real big <laughs> effect on our ability to to really like to fight and prosecute a success in the general election um so i kind of I, I, for me personally and, and 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 this seems like the benefit of hindsight is great things um but if we had gone into this general election and maybe this is like a provocation to people in this conversation if we had gone into this general election um on the basis of saying we support freedom of movement or on the basis of saying let's have a soft Brexit and let's utilise a soft Brexit to, to test the limitations um, of the Europeanists, but also to bring them al alongside us. Because, you know, Lexit position was redundant, that was never going to happen. Um, I think we could have been looking at a different story in this general election, but that would have required a lot more of like a, a holistic, total approach to how you conceptualise Labourism, how you're willing to profoundly transform the Labour Party as an instrument for socialist change. And I think the problem is, and this I think gets in touch with, I mean, Lewis's research, but also the question that he was just talking about, is there was a tension between to what extent with, uh, are we reliant on a Labour government being introduced to rebuild that working class infrastructure that existed in the 60s and 70s um, 
and to what extent can we cultivate it now? And the basic conclusion of a lot of people from, I think from, from quite early on in the campaign was, we have to wait until a Labour government is elected because that's the only basis upon which we can rebuild that infrastructure, create a new economic and social settlement, and then a new working class subject might emerge from that. Andrew Murray, who is, um, what is he, the political secretary or something at, at Unite, and who's also yeah. an advisor to, the, to Corbyn, he's got this great phrase um, that Corbynism was class-oriented but not class-rooted. Yeah. And, and by that he doesn't mean like, like the kind of demographics but the kind of like, like the structures that it was based on. Yeah. I think that's, that's exactly right. Yeah. And, it, and it was a kind of form, and yeah, speaking in past tense, it was a kind of form, it was a kind of political movement that was for class power but without any um, class basis to that. And that was the kind of really fascinating, and it, it presents a paradox for, for Labour right now because it it appears that we, you know, we can't, and, and given the Labour Party's kind of like quite, as I said, quite economistic appeals to people, we don't want to talk about migration, we don't want to talk about race, we don't want to talk about Brexit, we want to just put money in your pocket. Um, it seems that we can't win an election that way, and we don't really have the kind of class struggle capacity to kind of build up those um, presently. And, it, and it's like, but we can't also get into the state, so there's this kind of paradox here. But even at that level of populist discourse that people were talking about earlier, there was no real attempt. I think you had the first week um, where, yeah, we, <clears throat> Philip Green, all, all of these guys, yeah, yeah, all of these guys are being targeted in the first week. And then after the first week, all of that stuff sort of dropped off. The reliance was on Trump, Brexit, the NHS. Yeah, we ran, the left, the, the Labour Party ran its own version of Project Fear. Which in 2015, when Corbyn got elected, we were saying that was the mistake of exactly. so-called centrists. Mm -hmm. You guys are always you saw it in the Indiref, which obviously won but marginally, and then we saw it in the in, in the Brexit campaign when the, when the, when the kind of status quo ones are kind of like a project fear campaign, it just doesn't work, and that's what we ended up doing. Yeah, like, no, vote for Boris, and you'll get like babies on the floor of hospitals. Like if people didn't buy it, people didn't buy it. And Labour have done it two times with Kinnock and with. Miliband for their Miliband. They did the NHS project fear the NHS yeah. is going to crumble if you vote the Tories and every time. But also it doesn't no, work. There's no there's no like combative left discourse on class to be yeah. to be cultivated out of that. There's no sense of an antagonism, there's no identification of subjects <laughs> that are in beef with each other. Mm. And there was none of that. This was in an election where Jacob Rees Mogg went exactly. to the radio exactly. and said he was too clever. So Whereas in t 2017, that was exactly the case. In 2017, you know, Tony Blair's slogan, all of that, but it worked in 2017 for the many, not the few. Whereas in 2019, what was the... Um, real change. Real change. <laughs> Already you're identifying yourself against someone who is posing themselves as the political mm -hmm. outsider, as the person that's going to foment transformation. This, this was something that I worried about about halfway through the campaign. I was thinking about, you know, the idea that, like, if you fight a change election... Uh, when it is, if you fight a change campaign when it isn't a change election, you lose. And obviously, we were always going to fight a change mm. campaign. Um, but you know, thinking about Brexit and the moment we were in, I was kind of going, well, actually, people people are really focusing on Brexit, and they don't necessarily want any more dis disruption. If you see change as disruption, if you see it mm. as equitable to mm. that, then people are going to hear, you know, real change, and they're going to go no, we need stability because we've had enough disruption. Yeah. Like, we want Brexit to be sorted out, thank you very much, and like, I don't like the sound of that. Which is the real truth of the election, is it? 
people had, had accepted Brexit. <laughs> people had seen Brexit not as like, I mean, Brexiteers had seen it as a big motor of change, but everybody else had just been like, this is a thing that has to live and we have to deal with it and work our way around it. There's a, really, there's a nice little bit in, in James Buller's um, London Review of Books um, essay where he's kind of like talking about this, where he's saying like Boris Johnson's appeal was basically like anti-political. It's like you, you've yeah. had politics mm, for so long, it's wearing us down, let's not have any more. You know, because they were saying not only with, with, with Labour do they want a second referendum but, and, and a renegotiation, but they want, you know, pretend that's going to lead to an indie ref as well. So it was like vote, that kind of like you're saying. Um, do you want two yeah. more referendums? Yeah. Right? <laughs> yeah. yeah but um, but I think on, on, a, on a really basic level, I think there was kind of like a mismanagement of the campaign. And like, having seen that from the inside, I think inside to some extent that's kind of true. I remember, well, actually, no, I won't say that. But like, seeing it from the inside. <laughs> Give us the oh. gossip. Mm. Uh, we nearly had a hot scoop. <laughs> <laughs> so close. There was, there was a, well, I'll say there was a speech um, to all the party staff that I um, managed to hear um, right at the start of the campaign by a senior member of staff. Um, and they were saying to everyone, not a single seat is off um, at, like, beyond target. Every yes. seat is winnable. 2017 show that we can win and we've got the formula. And that formula is basically making appeal to people that we're a, we're a party of change and we're a party of economic change. And every seat was up for grabs. That was the words. Every seat is up for grabs. And you think about it now, it's just like, wow, that's mm. kind of mad. Mm. And so like, on, a, on a kind of basic level, I think there was mismanagement. Um, messaging was obviously completely scattergun, but like on the on the thing that you said about like um, the extent to which there was like a kind of class narrative. I mean, in twenty seventeen, like for the many not a few, like yeah, it's kind of a class narrative. I mean, it is, but um, again, it kind of comes back to like if there's no real class struggle, how can you reflect a class narrative? Do you know what I mean? Like, I know you can. I mean, but, <laughs> then it's, but, but then it's a populist narrative, right? You're constructing that many and not a few. That might be the the realm of discourse, but like I mean, populist discourse and class discourse can sit side by like side. Because it's not like people I just like talked about that I met in like North East Derbyshire. They're not saying like, well, you know, the working class or my interests are best served. But it's just the inability to identify an enemy, right? Yeah. Is that like throughout the whole? I mean, like I, I the for me a part of the whole Brexit thing, right? For at least a section of Brexit voters, probably the minoritarian section of. Brexit voters is there was a um, a delivering of vengeance <laughs> of years of that communities being devastated, broken down, all of that sort of stuff. That's what it was, and like the inability to tap into that in twenty seventeen, you could get away, there was a class narrative in the general election, but you could you could get away with the sort of ethical conduits of Corbyn's class narrative as it existed then, but he started with who should pay <laughs> for everything that's gone wrong. Mm. Um, and there was like a specific targeting of like particular um, no, big right. capitals. But like in 2019, yeah. there was an evasion of who should pay <laughs> for what's happened. And apart from that first week, there was no real channeling of revenge. Because that's what so many of the people I think we lost wanted is revenge for 40 years. I mean, let alone the fact that we didn't even talk about neoliberalism. We talked about austerity 
this is Jeremy Gilbert's point, right? So I won't claim it as original. But we talked about we talked about nine years of or ten, ten, ten years rather than forty yeah. years of Thatcherism. Exactly, right? As <laughs> like, Sarah Sultana said in Parliament. Yeah, whereas he, even on the basis of if I don't Ian Lever understand what forty years of Thatcherism necessarily means. It's quite I hard think to, people like, do. I think, think they, they do. But like, I mean, like but I'm saying, literally, what what do you say to the people in North East Derbyshire who literally have lived through? The miner strike. That's where, like, you know, that Battle of Orgreave was like a twenty-minute drive away from mm. North East Derby, yeah. ten-minute drive away, and they've seen what the police and, and the state did to, to to themselves and their communities and how they completely changed. And then you hear them say, "What well, about Boris?" You know, it's like it's quite hard to say. Yeah, but neoliberalism. You can't you can't do that in a three-minute conversation. No. It's it's like it's so dependent on like a national campaign. A uh, longer-term argument being constructed, like you can't do that as an individual knocking on someone's door. You know what I mean? That's the whole point. It was the failures of like the campaign and the broader Corbynite project to be able to deliver that argument and that analysis at a popular, at a popular level. level. I mean, there, to the extent that there wasn't even really like any assignation of blame in, like du- during, for example, the, the first leaders or the, the 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 Boris v Corbyn leaders debate, right? Like. Corbyn talked about austerity, but he never said austerity is a direct product of yeah. the Tory party, like this man. But this is because of the kind of like um, the the unwillingness to go into kind of like hostile or dirty yeah. politics, to never go for the jugular, right? Yeah. It was like we have to be kind of That's essentially civil it's like it's a kind of like perversely imperial approach that like <laughs> it was a kind of civil discourse yeah. as well watching yeah. those debates she was screaming at the like, oh, game like, <laughs> you know and they just wouldn't do but it. just absolutely yeah wouldn't and that yeah that was just hold all of the messaging children yeah there was a night of one of those leaders debates it might have been the question time one and I was working for Momentum in the central office and my job was like basically clipping the best bits and then giving them someone else to upload and then my kind of manager effectively would decide which was the best bits and put them on Mm. on the internet and so I was clipping all the things that I kind of thought were good and then passing them over to my manager and he was just like nah and then the next one nah and then it was just like the whole event like there was nothing it was yeah, like not yeah. one, and like that's, and you think about like, like most people don't even watch these things, right? No one reads mm. a manifesto, no one really pays attention to news in the same way that we do, and they just get that clip. Like, if you can't find one of those clips in a one hour debate, like, there's something wrong, you know? Mm. Yeah, but Sanders will probably then be the real test of whether or not populist discourse is sufficient to win an election, right? Because, like, at the level of oratory, I think we can all agree he's light years ahead mm, of absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Corbyn. I mean, he knows who the end um, is. Well. Yeah, yeah, and, and he has some kind of yeah, analysis. Absolutely. All the things um, we're talking about, he as problems of Corbynism, he's done to some extent at uh, like a yeah. short-term well, campaign. Before level. we get on to Bernie Sanders, do you want to talk a little bit about, because uh, we've talked a lot about why we lost the Red Wall seats and, uh, and the Midlands, um, but we also should maybe talk about why we only won partly and why we didn't win more partnies or more remain voting seats. Um. Yeah, well, I mean, I suppose Kensington is something of a, a, a kind of exemplar in this respect. Um, yeah. yeah, not to get to 2010, but I do think <laughs> that the Lib Dems did play a very significant role in Kensington and indeed in areas that they thought they could win. Um, I mean, my parents 
still live in Kensington um, and there was just an absolute barrage of um, Lib Dem literature. I mean, like, I think we they got about 18. Um, they launched their campaign there, the most marginal seat in the country. Yeah, they launched their campaign there. Um, Sleeps. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Evil. Um, and there was about, yeah, probably 18, 19 individualised letters that were sent through um, alongside, like, you know, there was a Metro which had a kind of um, Lib Dem cover, a Lib Dem gazette, like all sorts of things that were sort of like posing as like objective um, information about, uh, you know, the likelihoods of a Lib Dem win, that they mm. were the only meaningful opposition to conservatism um, in Kensington and indeed like other metropolitan um, seats that where Labour might win or the Lib Dems might win. Um, and I mean, I do think that that was very, very significant. I, But it's probably not enough to explain um, where we went wrong. And I think in Kensington in particular, there was a kind of conceivably like an identitarian thing, like Sam Jima, I think, insofar as he was like a... Um, like man of colour was able to perhaps attract some votes in the north of the constituency um, and maybe this speaks to like a kind of broader problem of of the Labour Party which is to take votes for granted like we did a lot of work in the north but like we can't assume that if you're BAME you vote Labour we can't assume that if you're like working class in the north you vote Labour um, we should be doing a lot of work over and through time to ensure that they are Labour consistently. Um, I mean, and then why did we not win more Putneys? I mean, perhaps we should never have been trying to win Putney in the first place, right? Like, why did we? Why did we play a very offensive strategy? Like again, conceivably, this is one of the the like problematic lessons is that we looked at twenty seventeen and we thought like you know we can take Putney. We 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 won Kensington and that was kind of, um, I mean, so there's a, a way of reframing this, which is that like you know in twenty. 17 when we won Kensington kind of out of the blue and unexpectedly like I'm from Kensington I went to Acton and Ealing Central to campaign because I never thought that it was possible that we could win Kensington but people in the Labour Party you know in in Southside or London Region or whatever they should have known better they should have been looking at the demographics of these constituencies and they should have been thinking like you know we need to we need to lay the foundations for these kinds of campaigns because you can't you win a campaign on the basis of data there was no data in Kensington because there had never been a campaign before so there was nothing to kind of gauge swings off there was nothing to to base a strategy on um and in a sense, like maybe this is one of the the, the kind of um, legacies of Corbynism is that now we have had this ground campaign and maybe the ground campaign again is insufficient, but we have a lot of data. We have stuff to base strategies off of and we can continue to build that. Um, and I don't know what that will yield in terms of like longer term trajectories, but I do think that that like certainly in Kensington, there's now a foundation to do something um, quite hopefully significant. Um, I I have a kind of crude take on this, right? Which is um, Lib Dem just like hate Corbyn and they hate the idea of like public ownership and all the other kind of economic like mild economic radicalism, and like 
they knew that we were the party that had the greatest chance. I mean, the, the, most voters aren't that stupid, like, it, and and they kind of knew that we were the party that had the greatest chance of delivering what they claimed to be their biggest issue, which is the second referendum, right? But they just fucking hate us, and like, and like that wasn't they, those people weren't going to come around. Um, and, and but I we think, shouldn't have been trying to win Wimbledon at the same time. Like, if you look at like like again, this is a question of where like taking a read on constituencies matters, right? Like, we went to Wimbledon thinking we could win it. Like, like I mean, it's Wimbledon just, isn't a winnable seat. But it's like, like, London marginal. There's just so uh, many activists in London who are just like willing to go to those areas as well. But then this is a question about activist retention, right? And like long-term strategy and like the, the, the conceivably like, you know, I mean, I think that this election probably has sowed the seeds for like capitalizing on all of the, the kind of intake of all of these like young motivated activists. And I suppose like, um, you know, repurposing them to other parts of the country, whether or not that will have like a, a success long-term is unclear because there are obviously like the kind of tensions that you were talking about earlier on the doorstep like you know someone pitches up on your mm. um on your doorstep wearing like some kind of like fresh trainers and like you know a, a mm. nice puffer jacket from Unico and you think like who the fuck is this wanker with, with this like you know um, well, Queen's English <laughs> it's true it happens. <laughs> it happens I'm just talking about my own trainers <laughs> um but, oh, I've lost my train of thought. Yeah. What lessons do we think U.S. socialists could take from the election? Because they're facing one of the most important ones of the world potentially. Oh God, don't. <laughs> don't rely on technology. Yeah, don't fucking lose, guys, because that really would be the end of things. Yeah. <laughs> don't, rely, don't rely on technology. Although maybe this is something that we can learn from the US, right? Or indeed, like, dare I say it, from the Lib Dems. Like, I do think like there there is technology out there that exists for canvassing. And although we've been talking quite a lot about how like the six weeks are insufficient, like, I do think that why why were the Labour, why are the Labour Party systems so old that we're relying on a software that uses. Uh, via Michelin to generate like have you ever heard of via Michelin as a map software like this is the this is the map that is being generated and yet like the Lib Dems in Kensington and the G does where we're using minivan a like little app that allows you to like have a distributed approach to to these um, what's it called to like canvassing sheets because um, you just get geotagged and you head out wherever you are. I remember in, in 2016 when after the leadership election Tom Watson's um, deputy leadership speech at conference his big thing was that he was going to digitalise the party oh, yeah. and that was digital <laughs> revolution it's just like you're thinking of that when you're knocking on doors in the rain like with all your canvassing sheets falling to pieces like cool story Tom oh, yeah, no, 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 no. But for but for the Americans, I mean, it's like I mean they they don't need our advice. They've, they've, yeah, exactly. they've got it. Like it's like be decisive. Don't like I mean the biggest fear I think that, that they might have is like the rest of the Democratic Party seem very keen on launching a, a, what we talked about like a project fear against Trump mm. and getting bogged down in this impeachment, which is obviously clearly like Trump is like incredibly dishonest and and probably um, yeah worthy of being impeached. But like that his poll ratings have never been better. You know, it's, it's not that so it's, it's comparable to the second referendum debate that kind of getting bogged down in um, those parliamentary politics. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. yeah, but I mean, that's not really a question of the DS for the DSA to the extent that I'm not sure they would necessarily. 
they're not pro impeachment proceedings. They're just kind of like no, they're on it. They're 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 they're, 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 they're streets ahead of us. Yeah, I just yeah, I just don't know what there is for them to learn from us. I mean, the, they've obviously got a much more difficult terrain and context, generally speaking, in terms of like the inst- labour institutions, the, the existence of a, a left welfare state, all of those sorts mm. of things that like, make it much more difficult for them, like historically speaking. Um, but I mean, on so many levels, I mean, you look at, even in the the primary run in 2015, 2016, like, the Sanders campaign, it's much more improved now, but had much more better grasp of class composition in America <laughs> than we do now <laughs> and we did in our campaign in, in 2019. The way it was able to like weave a narrative that um, combined black workers, Latino workers, um, deindustrialized white workers in places like Detroit, um, alongside social issues that aren't limited to like workplaces. It's the whole, exp- and questions of democracy and um, a lack of, you know, these aren't my understandings of politics, but a lack of corporate accountability and stuff like that. Like, the, the way it managed to like intertwine all of those different things was that far beyond anything um, that the left here did in terms of like messaging, but also just in terms of, they clearly value their independence more because they have to, right? I mean, there's a level of independence you can afford as a Sanders campaign um, that you couldn't necessarily afford in the Labour Party as the Corbyn project, right? There's a level of like removal where you can take a few steps away, you can say, we're going to crack on here and do our own thing that you couldn't do, that momentum clearly... Maybe it could have, right? Maybe there was some scope for contingency for, for momentum to fork out its own path, but... Um, yeah, so I'm not sure. I don't, they had the advantage as well of actual social struggle, which, mm-hmm. which we didn't have in Britain. And the political different, like the the the, the political systems being in, in, in completely different also matters. Like yeah. you, you can't get, a, like I was saying before, it's like hard to get a kind of standards like leader of the Labour Party because of all of the stakeholders within the party that you need to constantly manage yeah, um, and, and that presidential system the same in France you don't need to do that you can have be a charismatic politician you know um, I mean obviously check like the checks and balances in the American system are immense but it, they're not internal to the party they're not yeah. like they're not stopping um, Sanders do what you're like yeah. necessarily to, to that much like compared to Corbyn it's something you confront once you've consolidated. Right, yeah. And then even then, it's already highly centralised. Like, the Labour Party has is, is probably never been more centralised than it is now under Corbyn. But it's still the case that, especially with a politician like Corbyn, you have all of these sources of power that you constantly need to play off each other in balance. Mm. That uh, moves us on nicely to questions of Corbynism. Well, if we're... 10, 20, 30 years down the line, and a historian has to write the history of the period we've just lived. God bless them. <laughs> How would they characterise Corbyn? Lewis. Lewis. What? Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 This is Lewis's black project. That she is on. It's something in the works, though. What will they say? What will be their conclusion? I, l- l- this kind of is, the, like, I've written about this before. Um, it is a bit in my research, but, like, there's, there's obviously a rhetoric both um, from the left of the Labour Party and those who oppose the left of the Labour Party who like to accuse it, um, and we like to talk about ourselves as socialists, and um, it, there was this 
kind of political awakening that Corbyn like heralded within the Labour Party and, and was kind of like peppered his speeches kind of throughout his um, four and a half years, which is about like this party now being a socialist party and like John McDonald's phrase about like we can now speak the name of socialism and so on. But like, I mean, it depends what you what your definition of socialism is. But like, if you turn like if you're kind of a bit serious about like that kind of means socialising the means of production or like mm. public ownership on quite like a large scale and democracy on quite a large scale, then that's not what the Labour Party was at all ever proposing. And like, like kind of what, like so, so when you kind of peek behind, and even the rhetoric. I mean, like look at like Labour's party political political broadcasts. You, you remember that that one that was called Our Town that people yeah. kind of liked and hated, and it was all about like these streets are our streets, and there's all these kind of there's a there's an opening shot of like Clement Attlee's like you know name, and then there's um, all of these small business owners, and then it's like you know Corbyn's like saying we're going to give money back away from the big financiers to, to like local businesses and so on. I mean, that's like, it's just social democratic politics, which will be, let's be clear, like amazing uh, <laughs> compared to what we have now. But it's not socialism again. And, like, and, and, and so that's on the rhetoric, but then the policy is even more clear. So like, the, like, na like if you take the most radical end of it, the nationalisation stuff, like what were they proposing to nationalise? ownership. Right, but yeah. nationalisation, so you're nationalising all of these um, already like natural monopolies. So like, there's a there's a case there to, to nationalise them. Just someone pragmatic, like the people who are writing in the FT will probably like some of them will agree with you. And then and then yeah, workers' ownership scheme that was like people fucking hated that. Uh, uh, but like, what did it amount to? It was amounting to giving shareholding rights to ten like of of, of ten percent to to workers in in some large companies. So that basically means you have workers managing their own. If you want to put it in Marxist terms, workers managing their own exploitation or something, right? Like, I, again, I think this would be great. I think it would be a good deal, better than what we have right now, and it would substantively change the like, power dynamics of all of like, the society we live in. But it is, I mean, is it meaningfully socialist? No, it's, it's like basically getting back to a kind of corporatist model that like, we had in the post-war era. And, you know, I mean, there's just innumerable examples of the National Investment Bank that they had. That, the function of that bank was lending money to other private banks. And how was it ran? It was ran by a coalition of the government, um, uh, trade unions and business. It's like you couldn't be more corporate, you know. Mm. So there you go, that's, that's the, that's the bottom line, guys. <laughs> so your line is, Corbynism is social democracy 2.0. Yeah, I mean, obviously, if you want to rally the troops by calling it socialist, go, go for it. But, I mean, in practice, it's like totally... I mean, is there a problem that we delude ourselves and call it socialist? I don't, I don't know, maybe. Context is everything, right? <laughs> I mean... Yeah. I mean, just um, radical on, on, in relation to neoliberalism. Yeah, be as yeah. you know, be as radical as reality itself, and mm -hmm. like in in the current context, the twenty nineteen manifesto was pretty radical. I mean, things like a, I mean, there are things like a, I mean, I'm looking at the Irish election at the minute, right? Mm -hmm. And you look at the the Sinn Fein manifesto. The Sinn Fein manifesto is like a heavily taxed and spend manifesto. It's not particularly radical. It's not particularly different from anything Ed Miliband might have said, except there's a explicit rhetorical move away from talk of austerity light um, and doing things a bit slower and a bit nicer um, to, to just opposing things. Um, but then you look at, for example, the the left contenders to Sinn Féin. Sinn Féin, Sinn Féin look like they're set to win by all of the common... Polls. There's a problem with the amount of candidates they're filled in and whether that will match the fact 
that they haven't fielded enough candidates compared to Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael. Um, but then you have Sinn Féin's left contenders, which is the, you know, it's the people before profit, solidarity, coalition, um, an assemblage of Trotskyists, essentially. Mm. And, you know, I'd probably vote for them if I were Ireland, to be quite <laughs> clear. But, like, you look at their manifesto, and their manifesto is several scales weaker than the 2019 Labour manifesto. I mean, there's a, a Trotskyist coalition compared to the second party of British capitalism. <laughs> and the second party of British capitalism's manifesto in the space of two years is exceedingly more radical than uh, a Trotskyist manifesto. And it baffles the mind, but it shows me one, for all the problems with Corbynism, the, the, the social and economic programme that was elaborated was the biggest advance of it <laughs> and and the the intellectual impact that it had on the membership um but even then like, i agree with lewis essentially it's a social democratic manifesto um it's probably a social democratic manifesto much more difficult to implement in the current economic context and economic circumstance um but there are there were things there were offsprings of radicalism in it you know like the some of the things that people jump, you know, like the four-day week, for example. That, but that wasn't a... That was basically... It was a review. It was a... It amounted to saying we're going to bring back sectoral collective bargaining and then when you've increased the power of workers, it should go back to the historical standard of which, like, working hours would reduce, which is a kind of, like, intellectual, like, mm. point but rather than a policy. Pro problematically, it means little, right? But in terms of, like, which I think is the terms that we're talking about, which is... What what influence does the program have on popular consciousness? Yeah, on popular consciousness, but also on like the the consciousness of future generations of socialists. I mean, it would have given so much power to working class people straight up. Like, huh? but, but like it's, this is the kind of funny thing. It comes back to the E.P. Thompson thing again. It's like at the stroke of a pint of parliamentary pen, if you imagine everything went quite well, like Labour would be giving power from exactly. the top down to sure. the workers from to the bottom up is kind of this funny thing that that was kind of what it was about. But even before government, just the idea of like putting these things into like popular consciousness, into equipping these principles, these ideas, these aspirations towards a generation of socialists who have just been defeated and are looking for different st strategic conclusions moving forward. Like, of course, it's a, a form of social democracy, essentially, because it's all predicated on some sort of compromise with capital. <laughs> what capital will go for it remains to be seen. But um, but it is still like a, I don't know, I think it's like a we significant are advance. One of the policies is clearly socialist, which is the Green New Deal. I mean, or mm. even the fight for that policy poses major anti-capitalist conclusions. So you might fight for a single policy that might be social democratic in that is reforming capitalism but ultimately the way that capitalism is moving especially with the climate question it poses systemic change as the ultimate um, consequence if you if you take this policy to its logical conclusion but well, i mean if you look also just like their thinking on that policy you know like it was influenced by the work of the kind of like kind of neo-Keynesian economist called Mariana Mazzucato, yeah, and yeah, her yeah. whole thing is about like real estate. right, yeah. yeah, and so it's using the state to kind of harness the market and push mm. the market along, and like you have this bandwagoning effect when you invest, and so it's very much like a kind of partnership with business. It doesn't necessarily need to, towards 
I mean, also, like, it's arguable, like, do we have time for, you know, kind of a wholesale revolution before we have to sort out, like, putting solar panels on people's roofs? I don't, I don't know. Maybe we need to get the market so. Which one first? Yeah. So, to coin a phrase, given that we've appropriated Stuart Hall's essay from 1978, what is to be done? <laughs> um... Uh. What is to be done? Oh. We can edit this silence out, right? Yeah, <laughs> hopefully. Uh, well, I mean, I suppose there's like a... There's a kind of question about where we see the, like, primary uh, left huh. momentum. Oh, damn, they've really studied the name of momentum. <laughs> The primary, like, left engine being, like, does it remain within the Labour Party? Are we looking for some... Are we to move away from the Labour Party entirely? Or are we looking for a kind of, like, dual power model? Um, and if so, what does that look like? What I suppose... Like dual power? I mean, like, power, sort of, one foot inside the Labour camp, one foot outside of it. Um, yeah. And, like, to the extent that I think that, like, you know, you were talking earlier about, like, freedom of movement and the kind of, like, political arguments that Labour perhaps... Um, should and could have been making after the referendum around freedom of movement and that like one of the things that has clearly been borne out in this election is that like we need forms of anti-racist organising then that poses a question as to whether or not that can meaningfully be done within the Labour Party I think um, so I, I suppose my my kind of anxiety coming out of the election was like what what does organising under the Labour banner look like, right? And is it enough? And I think conceivably it, it, it perhaps can't be done um, properly and therefore like there needs to be something outside of it, but I don't really know yeah, what that looks like. I feel very much like stumped for um, any kind of suggestions. So. Mm. Um, <clears throat> is this the Labour leadership as well? That's obviously I'm going. On the level of the Labour leadership, I think um, it's obviously increasingly becoming two goals race between Keir Stormer and Rebecca Long-Bailey. And Rebecca has actually surprised... I mean, for cousin and I'm going to vote for Rebecca Long-Bailey. <laughs> I think um, she... Niche. Yeah. <laughs> Surprising. Um, but, 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 like, I was kind of the mind that she didn't really, like, inspire me loads. But I think she mm. has actually been way better, a, um, way, way better in, in, her, in her performances and media performances than, than I was kind of expecting. Like, she's actually a really clear speaker and she doesn't really, like, stutter or pause. And I think she does kind of know her shit. Um, also kind of funny and the I, Amsterdam line was good yeah. no fields of wheat yeah. <laughs> she's been to Amsterdam yeah, kind of <laughs> and then the reverse for Keir Starmer actually because it's like I, and, and, and this is the thing so Keir is standing on a platform that's basically like he's got like quote unquote socialist values he would say but he kind of looks a bit like Blair so he doesn't really need to kind of like sell um, really how he's going to win because he's kind of closer to the model that has won for the Labour Party in the past the problem that we have is, is kind of like twofold it's like one, it's like when she's promising things like um, open selection of MPs, which I think would be a real, potentially like a real benefit for um, the Labour Party in general. Um, it's like she can't really promise that because that's not something that 
Corbyn even could deliver because he was hemmed in by the trade unions at conference and um, there's no real clear like path to doing that and like it's, it's kind of um, there's a huge party management issue there um, and then uh, and then and also in terms of the anti-racism thing um, there's always a temptation in the Labour Party because, uh, to not get dragged into the kind of cultural war but like uh, and that kind of means that you tend to find the left like as I was saying earlier speaking about this issue in really economic terms and I just don't think it lands and I think if you fail to kind of take on prejudice as a mm. kind of independent thing independent of economics it's not really just about you know like wages being driven down or not um, by migrants like I just think it's a bit of a dead end so um but I suppose this is the question that I was trying to get to as to whether or not like anti-racist organising can be done under a Labour banner and if so like how would that happen I had a really in <laughs> a plug of something that is like incohate is just like in its very incipient phases but I well I don't even know if we could call it a phase but I met a history teacher get like Gramsci 101 <laughs> I met a history teacher on the campaign who um, was describing how up to key stage three you actually have quite a lot of flexibility in terms of syllabuses. So he is essentially teaching like an anti-racist, anti-capitalist syllabus which gets you up to age 13, right? But then you hit GCSE syllabuses and you have much more um, restrictions in terms of what you can teach. Um, but I suppose like, you know, is, you know, <laughs> I, 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 his description of the limitations of w or the reasons why this isn't being taught is not just like oh you know you you actually can't teach it but that like you know it's to do with the the level of work that goes into writing a lesson plan that like we need some kind of essentially like um skillshare or like kind of mining of the kind of collective industry of all the history teachers or indeed people more broadly um but I suppose there's a question as to whether or not, like, should that be something that is done under labour, with labour? Like, how how do we position this anti-racist organising that we're doing, um, given the kinds of coalitions that labour is trying to build and the different tensions within its, the kind of constituencies that it's attempting to reconcile um, and that is that's a kind of like long-term organizing question that I really don't know how we surmount, right? Like, how do we overcome the metropolitan red wall divide in terms of an anti-racist strategy? Yeah, I don't. I really don't have any other idea, ideas. Um, it's hard to think of the solutions, but like, I mean, the problems are really, really deep. Like, that what we haven't talked about, like the State of the Union, not the Trump yeah. speech, but the State of the United <laughs> Kingdom. Yeah. And I mean, what's really terrifying about the loss of these red wall seats, like, like fifteen of these seats have never been Tory since nine, since before, like almost since nineteen forty-five, and like mm. twenty-eight of them or so were like safe Labour seats, right? And like, so like, once that kind of pattern of like voting is, is kind of lost, it's it's like Scotland tells the story. Like in twenty ten, obviously before twenty ten, Labour had forty of the seats, and now. Um, SNP and they're not coming back it doesn't look like they'll ever come back we have now won a single solitary Scottish MP and it's just like that is really troubling um, I mean I just don't, I don't really know what the answer is for that like potentially 
the, the, the Jeremy Gilbert line is like, you know, have a kind of pluralist alliance of the various different parties. I, 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 I don't know. I really don't know. But um, I mean, that would be premised on some kind of meaningful electoral reform, right? Like, we can't have any kind of pluralist alliance under the current sort of electoral power. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and, and, and the Labour Party is not like, disposed to that kind of thing. No. Um, yeah. Also, I mean, like, you know, a lot, a lot of that uh, pluralistic alliance predicated on reform in the electoral system is predicated on the idea that you form an alliance with the Lib Dems, and and they fucking hate us. And, well, they fucking hate <laughs> us. Yeah. Hate I mean, back, there is there, well. but yeah. that is, as long as uh, someone like Corbyn or even Rebecca Long Bailey is in the leadership, the Lib Dems will tap to the right of us, right? <laughs> um, in terms of the the leadership election, I mean, it is. It's difficult to be depressed when you're so bored, like we, like we were saying before, when we were just talking. Um, I mean, it's also ambiguous, right? I mean, you kind of get the impression that no one really wants to ruffle any feathers. No one really wants to say anything like too controversial or too mm-hmm. difficult. Um, Starmer, he, you know, he's. You, you kind of get the impression that if Starmer gets elected, he will throw us under a bus. But he'll assure us Slowly. that it is a very red bus yeah. for us under. Um, and all of the talk about, you know, even the recent reform, the, the recent policy proposals that he came out for in terms of like independent bodies for Labour deciding candidates just seemed like posed as democratic reforms, but really democratic backsteps. <laughs> Again, with all of those internal reforms, it's like the leader doesn't have that much say. Like, I mean, yeah, they so do, but they need a real clear... bargaining process. Exactly. Yeah. exactly. That's what we saw with the open selection debate in 2018. Um, but yeah, I mean, like, Starmer, I mean, it would be really hard for him to kind of avoid, like, basically going right on the economy and right on, on, on like, all the kind of politics, because if he wants to win a coalition that is like not even just the red wall but it's like those kind of like swing seats I think that's what that would require and he's going to have people in his ear telling him to do that and I don't think members really have a line to the to, will have a line to the leader in the same way they've had a line to Corbyn it's, it's more than people in his ear as well. I mean I mean, I, uh, on the electoral terrain I don't think it would be great for him I mean in terms of like electoral efficacy I don't, <laughs> I don't think Starmer's great anyway <laughs> I, don't, I don't think he's the yeah, that's actually it's kind of a little bit disappointing and boring. Yeah, exactly. Like, he's, not, he's not a dynamic <laughs> candidate. Dumb. He's like a really questionable, mm, yeah. <laughs> um, ethically dubious, pretty politically inconsistent candidate who, who, like, I think people should be much more confident in saying lost Labour the election. <laughs> mm. <laughs> even if, even if whatever position With you take on Brexit, for example, I like his hair. No, come on, it's it's. It's unchanged. It's so static. Oh, I, Lots that, of that, hairspray. It's yeah. as unnoticeable as he is. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's that. great. Yeah. Uh, oh, I've noticed it. <laughs> I think I noticed the it only before thing I even really knew who it was. I was like, that guy with the hair. That's, yeah. <laughs> but, like, I mean, even if you take his Brexit position, even if you think he was right to go for a second referendum position and really hammer home uh, on that and I don't think he was I think it was disastrous even if you think that was right the fact that he predicated so much of the strategy around constitutionalism around parliamentary arithmetic anybody on the left anybody in the movement should be able to identify how catastrophic that was for the Corbyn process generally and how much that led to so many people conceptualising 
Corbyn as just any politician per other politicians, right? And that was catastrophic for us. Um, and like, ending factionalism is just code for going for the left. <laughs> Both the leaders are kind of saying that. Like, you know, it's, it's kind of what people want to hear because, I mean, it's like, you know, there, was, there, was, there was some polling done by... Um, uh, uh, there was some polling done by a guy called Tim Bale, who's a political scientist in Queen Mary's or something, and like, uh, of Labour members, and the kind of findings were broadly that Labour Party members are not that kind of socialist. Like, they're, they're basically people that you know, for, for various different reasons, like kind of were into social democratic policies, they got inspired by the Corbyn thing, they got really pissed off with the PLP and they doubled down on Corbyn. But it's not necessarily that where the, where the party membership are at, it's like they're committed both like ethically and like, like, like politically to socialism. It's like they're very, very, I think the membership is incredibly pragmatic. And yeah, so I think the the Starmer thing is just like really, and so so the appeal to end factionalism is like people just like they're fucking tired of like four years of infighting, and I know it's yeah. not, it's it's not really us do, 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 like doing it because like, I mean, open selection is a really good example. How many trigger ballots were had before this election? I think it was like four or five, mm. and then and then and then like two took place. The rest, the NEC rescinded them and reimposed the candidates. Um, and none of them really based on a left-right basis anyway. And it's like, um, like the factionalism from our side has been pretty slim. Um, and been non-existent. Yeah, and, and basically, but like what they've done, what the kind of right of the PLP have done is just grind down this move. It's a bit like the Boris thing. It's like people, like even the kind of membership of the Labour Party have been like, I don't really want any more of that. If, if he, if Keir Starmer has the chance of unifying the PLP, that's kind of chill, let's get on with it, you know? I think you know, that's kind of quite appealing. Yeah, it sounds appealing, it's just incredibly depressing and stultified for any like radical left project, right? Mm. I mean, it poses a question, right, <laughs> about for the left, if, I mean, if Rebecca Long-Bailey, because you're right, Rebecca Long-Bailey is also calling for an end to factionalism. Mm. Every candidate, probably with the exception of Richard Bergen, is calling for unity mm. and an end to factionalism, right? Mm. Which means that either, if you're on the left, it means what coalitions and compromises can I make mm -hmm. that is able to sustain my position and to sustain my leadership? And if you're on the uh, left, centre-left, moving rightwards, that means to what extent can I get away with dismantling and mm -hmm. pushing aside the left? And, you know, for someone like Starmer, he might want to take a... He, he personally, this is speculation, he might want to take a more diplomatic, slower approach, but... You know, that we know <laughs> with so much of what's happened over the four, last four or five years, it's not really up to him. Because mm. as soon as the media mm. gets on him, as soon as the PLP gets on him, as soon as, as soon as that all of those anchors of power in society get onto him, he'll be put into a position where and he doesn't have the ideological grounding that Corbyn does anything approaching it. He's a different type of political animal. He'll go for the left. And we're in a really tough position because we can't say, look, you need to treat members really well because we had such a great success in 2019 when we mobilised, uh, you know, however many thousands of activists on the doorsteps. Like, you need to treat as well because we are major weapon. We don't really have that. And, like, what, what levers we have to pull are kind of slim. Yeah. Well, although I do think that there is a way in which you can, like, if, if we don't have the kind of regeneration of labour through its, like traditional institutions through like unions 
what we have is the membership, right? Like that is the only way through which labor can conceivably re mm. like regenerate itself. So like that is sacred at this point. Like it's a kind of depressing um, position to be in that like all we have is our ground game, but like you have to enshrine and then kind of scale up or scale out Woods. And so to that extent, like an appeal to the membership is necessary, like keeping them on side is necessary. You can't, mm. you can't just say like, oh, you know, we can disregard their desires because essentially they didn't win. So we don't need them because mm. um, it's yeah. really all <laughs> we have. Mm. I kinda, it's the only asset. I kind of think there's like two things that... that thread through the conversation right like is the there's obviously an impasse that will come about for Labour members if Starmer's elected and that the question begs what does the radical yeah. left do and that the constituency they have in the Labour Party do if Starmer wins um, before we're gotten rid of and that begs the question of organisation and campaigning and strategy beyond the Labour Party Right, <laughs> like whether it's a turn to municipalism, um, whether it's trying to found organisation outside of the Labour Party that's not on an electoral basis because it's not possible in the the electoral system we're in, <laughs> um, there needs to be an honest reckoning with that, um, and there needs to be an honest reckoning with the fact that we haven't been able to create some sort of independent socialist organisation in the Labour Party, and we've been forced to do it outside of the Labour Party. Um, but then there also there's also a much bigger question. I think if Beckerlong Bailey wins, it's which will survive for a little bit. Will will we'll be able to build inside the Labour Party for a little bit and thrive for a little bit? But the key contours on which a socialist uh, or a left wing social democratic project is built, um, they s up against the threat of Johnson. Um, Toryism as it's currently constituted um, it seems you know you can bang on all day about abolishing the House of Lords the Green Industrial Revolution but unless you're willing to thread and rebuild a socialist vision that encaptures those things in a much bigger socialist narrative then we will flop <laughs> I think that's a very good place to start uh, and end our conversation on what to do what is to be done but I think we'll finish the podcast with the villain of the week the favourite segment favourite of oh. all future listeners <laughs> um, who wants to start with the villain of the week sure. I mean I've, sure. Lewis had some comments on the uh, is it I always get this wrong Pete Peter Thorpe. Pete Judge. Oh, that guy. Judge. I know. Booty Judge. That was me. Buddy Judge. Buddy Judge. Buddy Judge. Buddy Judge. Yeah, it wasn't really Buddy Judge as much as the Buddy Judge in part funded app that really shat on my Tuesday. And my Wednesday. 
And probably my Thursday. <laughs> Insofar as yeah. we... At time of recording. Still don't know. Is it 71% are out now? I haven't looked 70, for the last few hours. Yeah, 1 mm. or 2%. Yeah. Um, Jesus Christ. So, I mean, it's and a crazy the, system. It takes a long time to process that shit. No, it doesn't. That's the point. It historically hasn't taken much yeah. time to process. Yeah, no, the app, like, app freaking off. But. I'm a, you know, I'm a stitch-up conspiracist. Um, yeah I think the app is a a certain contender for the rhythm of the week just the app itself the Diero booty judge technology yeah yeah the kind of like technocratic um, slightly robotic waxy butty judge app I had visions of waking up in the morning and checking my phone and Bernie Sanders wins Iowa and it was snatched away Mm. by that app. Mm. I was like, this will sustain me through the end of January, beginning of February. (laughs) And uh, yeah, the app killed it. I um, did my research for this segment of the show. Having not, you know, heard what it, how, it, how it goes down, I thought I'd do my homework, so I'm fully prepared. <laughs> um, and that involved looking on Twitter. And I found this guy called Peter Dorr, who you, some, some, some people might have seen. And he's a millionaire who designed um, uh, t- a home for homeless people, which is basically two wheelie bins hinged together um, so you can, like, lie in them. And he said that it, this wasn't, like, a way of um, solving homelessness, but, like, ameliorating... Yeah. And so like, I looked into the guy, and um, he's like quite an interesting character. So he made his money off like, being one of the first um, entrepreneurs to like, have an um, internet service providers in the UK, and like, made of his millions of this. But then since then, he's become this kind of like, weird survivalist guy. He stood for, sorry, he stood for the Brexit party, I think in like, Cambridge or somewhere. And then he's also this survivalist dude who's like, invested in this farm in Norfolk, where you can subscribe to, to, to it and it costs like a hundred grand for one person and then when shit hits the fan, um, you can go and live there because it's a self-sustainable farm and currently, um, he says, it has um, over a thousand tons of grain, 400 tons of oil, 120 cows, three pigs and a few chickens, um, so it could be worth your money. And also he's like, He's like super, super wacky. Like, I <laughs> think our Patreon money. I think maybe he's like the kind of guy that Don Cummings would employ. Okay. But like, yeah. and I checked his personal yeah, website, and he's got this really deep point, which is at the bottom of his page. He says, um, "I put a lot of thought into various levels of philosophy, from the meaning of life through to being human. Um, at some point, I will risk exposing these thoughts, which many, including me, will find uncomfortable." He's got a lot of secret wisdom. <laughs> okay, well, do we need some sort of like deciding mechanism? Who is our villain of the week? Uh, do you guys have one? I mean, they're always the easy ones. I don't necessarily have a villain of the week per villain of the week per se, but I mean, I did like really enjoy. Just in, there was lots of Twitter conversation. There it was a waste of time and stuff like that. But I did really enjoy just how humiliated. Uh, Katie Hopkins got. Oh yeah, um, that was great. In her little escapade. Yeah. Um, to what was the name of the award? Cunt. Yeah. Like, I don't know what. Yeah, it, yeah, yeah, yeah. The C U N T. C U N T. Yeah. And just a shame that no one really recorded her response to reading what was 
in presentation behind the prototype. She's the villain of the year, of the decade, maybe. It's mm. lifetimes. The thing is, what I've, I sort of have a hot take about Katie Hopkins, mm. which is that, like, if you put her next to Piers Morgan, like, he's the much kind of more clever operator, mm. and that he knows mm. how, that he can push it really far but he knows when to pull back yeah, like yeah. he keeps his job on breakfast television and she has been sued for like all she's worth like i think she yeah. has to sell her house oh yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah she like lost all her money that like she's had her twitter yeah, account yeah. closed Excellent. down like he knows <laughs> how the to... listing circulating but yeah i don't know it's kind of she really she fucked it up she's I a think. crude operator yeah yeah and on that note thank you very much for listening in and see you next time and let's hope that katie hopkins stays bankrupt Wow.